Okay, let's take our Bibles out. We're going to turn to Exodus chapter 25. We're going to read just the first nine verses. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive a contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing, oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for the setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. And of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Dan and Liz and their kids came up, and so we're getting to have some grandkid time, and, and it's, it's a lot of fun. I always love it. Yesterday we took them out to the shack, and we went riding on the four-wheelers. And the day before that, I kind of put a cushion on the front of my lawnmower there, right at my feet, and so they could uh, ride on the lawnmower with me as we mowed the lawn. And and so, and we've spent some time at the park and and doing a lot of fun things. And and we love that time that we get with uh with our grandkids. They always refer to it as a sleepover at Grandma and Grandpa's. And when it gets toward night and stuff, uh, one time they one of them asked a question about, "Do we got to go?" And it's like, "Nope, we're not. We're spending the night again." And and when they come in to say goodnight or something like that, I, I, I usually mention to them about how fun it is to have those guys over for sleepovers and that kind of thing, and just to have them around and to be with them. Well, you know, I can think of a time in the Bible when we see some of the same kind of enthusiasm out of the disciples. Remember when Jesus took Peter and James and John up onto the mountain of transfiguration and Jesus was transfigured before him and, and uh, Moses and Elijah showed up to talk to Christ about what was about to take place. And Peter, remember Peter got all excited and basically he said, if you put it in my grandkids' language, is, can we have a sleepover? Because <laughs> Peter says, hey Lord, I got an idea. Let's, we'll, all build, we'll build a tent for you. We'll build a tent for them. We'll build tents for us. And we'll just stay here on the mountain and have this, have this sleepover. He didn't want it to, to end or to stop. Well, Jesus kind of refocused Peter a little bit at that time on what he wanted him to be thinking about at the moment. But you know what? There was that excitement. He was, he saw Christ radiating His glory and the glory of God. And He just didn't want it to stop. It was this mountaintop experience and He didn't want to come down. And you know, that's kind of what we're seeing on a larger scale with Israel and what God's doing with Israel in Exodus at that time. Because now it shifts to where they're going to build the tabernacle. Then this, What is the tabernacle? The tabernacle is God's tent. It's God's place to have a sleepover. It's God's place where He's going to dwell among them. And that's the reason for it. That's the purpose. These people are traveling in the wilderness at this time. And they're living in tents. And God says, now you're going to build My tent. And He's very specific about exactly how He wants it built. And why are you going to build My tent? Because I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell with you. God is actually going to be among the children of Israel in a tangible way. In fact, when he outlines how they're going to arrange their whole camp, he ends up with all the twelve tribes of Israel encamped all the way around with the God's tent right in the very center of the camp. 
And so God is the center of the lives for Israel. God is to be the center of every individual Israelite. He's the center of their social life, the center of their public life, the center of everything is God as He dwells among them right in the middle of the camp. And you know what? He's dwelling among us to this day. In fact, even in a greater way. And that's what we want to consider this morning. Is God among us? That has always been His desire. When we look back at the Garden of Eden, it was God among them. They walked with God, it says, in the cool of the, of the garden. And they talked with God. And it's not until they sinned and, and rebelled against God and decided to go their own, own way that, that they found the need to hide from God. Before that, they enjoyed the fellowship of God. They loved having God among them. But then when they brought sin into the world, then what happens? They get exiled. And we see kind of the same thing a little bit. It reminds us of the Garden of Eden. Because what do we see now? God now takes His, His chosen people, the nation of Israel, and He separates them out of Egypt, calls them out of slavery, brings them out into the wilderness. They're headed toward the Promised Land where they'll have rest. But as they're on their way there, He again makes a way to dwell among the people. And then He puts Aaron and his sons in charge of the priesthood, and He establishes His priesthood in this way for Him to dwell among the people. And what is their job? Just like Adam and Eve were told in the garden, you're going to work the garden, you're going to tend and keep the garden. The priests are told, you're going to, you're going to work the temple. You're going to tend and keep the temple. Now, unfortunately, the priests don't do much of a better job than Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden either. And so, uh, there's going to come a time when the nation of Israel is going to get exiled again. We got exiled out of the garden. They're going to get exiled into, some of them up into Assyria, some of them into Babylon, but they'll be brought back. But we see exactly the way God created it to be where He would be dwelling with and among His people. That's what He's doing again. He's making a way for Him to live right in the midst of Israel as they go about their daily lives. You know, that's what He wants for us. He wants to live right in the midst of, right in the middle of us, both corporately and individually. He wants to be right in the middle, right in the thick of your life, right in the middle of our church. He wants to be among us. That's what Jesus Christ is all about. Is God gathering us to Himself? Well, as we consider it this morning, we're going to look at a couple different things. We're going to look at the building of the tabernacle. And we're going to look at the purpose of this tabernacle. First, in the building of the tabernacle, we find a, a few specific things that happen. One is that it was provided through the people. He says, I want you to take an offering, take a collection for my tent, for my home. And so I found it interesting because when you think about it, this is really the first thing that they do for God. Up to this point, God has done everything for them. God came and brought the plagues and delivered them from the, the nation of Egypt. And He brought them out into the wilderness and He fed them and He gave them water. And God has done everything for them. And now God is, is telling them, look, I want you to do something for me. And the first thing that He wants them to do is, is to give toward and they're also going to be involved in the putting together of this tabernacle, this tent for God. To just say that it's going to be provided by the people. In other words, they're the ones coughing up the money or giving the jewelry, giving the goat skins, giving the, all the different things that need to be happen to, to do this. Where did they get all that stuff? And I realized that, you know what, there really isn't anything that we ever do for God that He hasn't first done for us in a much bigger way. When you stop and think, where did Israel get the gold? 
Where did they get the bronze? If you remember back when they were in bondage in Egypt, they were slaves. But God told them, by the time this is over, Egypt is going to pay you to leave. And that's exactly what happened. As they fled out of Egypt, their neighbors gave them just heaped stuff on them. Their neighbors are coming and giving them jewelry and giving them gold and giving them, giving them all this stuff. And so it actually, it says, even though they never lifted a hand against Pharaoh, not one of them fought in any battle against Pharaoh, they plundered Egypt. They left with Egypt's riches. Because God just said, I'm going to do it all and this is what's going to happen. And that's what happened. And so actually when you think about it, when God's calling upon them and saying, look, I want you to build my tent now and I want you to provide for it. And he's not forcing anybody. He says, I want everybody whose heart moves them to do it. But of course, he's the one moving hearts. So it's like a free will offering. Whatever you have that you want to give toward this, you bring it and you give. These are the things that we need. And you know what? They just did it. But you know what? When you stop and think about it in doing that, they get, what they really did was they gave back to God a fraction of what God had gave them as He brought them out of Egypt. And you know, that's what we still do today. We love God and our hearts move us. And so we give toward God and we provide things and we step out to meet needs and things like that that we wouldn't otherwise if we weren't in this relationship with Him. But God moves our heart and we give towards things that just happen. And when we do that, what are we doing? We're taking a very small piece of what God has already given to us because it's God who gave us the ability to work and to get gain. It's God who prospers us. And so when we do that, we're just really giving kind of back to Him what He's out of the abundance that He's already given to us. And so really, this is going to be accomplished by the people as they're going to give. But when you think about it, it's, it's really through the people because it's because of God and His work in their life that they have those things to be able to give to begin with. But God does want them and expects them. And we're going to find that not only, not only in material things, but also in abilities. If you read later on, oh, is it, what is it about? Chapter 30, I think it is, if I remember right. Uh, it's going to mention a couple guys specifically by name, and God's going to say that, you know what, I've given them specific talents to be able to do these fancy engravings and all these different things. I've gifted them with that ability, and they're going to use those abilities to do the things that we need to do. But then he doesn't use just those people that he gifted in very special ways. It also says that everybody else that wants to step forward and help was pitching in. So all the people were stepping forward and doing the projects that needed to happen to make God's tent come into being. And so God, you know, it's an awesome thing. When He saves us from our sins, it's not, the, it's not the end of the deal, it's the beginning. I love it that not only did God save me and set me on a path that's headed for heaven, but He also gifts me. He gifts me with abilities that I can use for the furtherance of His kingdom and for reaching out to other people. And God expects me to use those gifts to do exactly those things. You know, God could have done anything, any way that He wanted to show His presence within the nation, but He wanted to have them involved in it. And this is a way that they could all be involved. And He says, some of you are going to give to it, some of you are going to work on it, you're going to do these things, but they were going to provide for this. And so God would work through the people in that way. Also, that it was not only provided through the people, that it was produced 
by the people. And we've already kind of covered that too. The two kind of come together. This is where they take their gifts and abilities and they put together the tabernacle and uh, make it as God would have them to do. There's more chapters in the building of the tabernacle than there is in the deliverance out of Egypt. Which shows that God is very specific about exactly how He wanted this to happen and communicating to the people that this is exactly what happened. So it's just what God wanted it to be. The tabernacle was patterned by God. He wanted it to be a specific thing. The Bible tells us here that when Moses goes up is up on the mount, that God shows him a pattern. I think it's because of what it is. God was very specific in what it is because it seems to mirror the tabernacle in heaven. The tabernacle was to be a reflection on earth of what is in heaven. Even when you get up to the book of Revelation, when you get to especially chapters 14, 15, 16, you start to see the wrath of God being poured out on the earth, chapter 17. And what happens is you hear a voice coming out of the temple that's in heaven to proclaim what He wants to happen. You see angels leaving the temple that's in heaven to come down on earth and to carry out the judgments of God upon this earth. And it appears that what is happening is that God is detailing to Moses, telling you, I want you to build it exactly like this. Because it is a representation of what is in heaven on earth. And when you think about the whole idea of the temple, that's, that's what it's about. It's about God dwelling among them. It's about God's presence on earth. Because once the tabernacle is done, the Bible says it's going to be filled with His glory. And so the people were supposed to make it in a very specific pattern so that it mirrored the sanctuary in heaven. Now, the purpose. The first purpose of the tabernacle, we're going to tie right into what we were just talking about, is that it was a pattern. It does that in kind of two ways. In one way, whatever God told Moses to build was supposed to be an earthly example of a heavenly sanctuary. But... It was also a pattern itself for what was going to happen in the future. The tabernacle is all this furniture. It's it's kind of in two sections. The first section is the holy place. And the second section is the most holy place. The holy place is the area that the priests could come into. And that was where the altar was, where you would offer the sacrifices. That's where the basin was that they would wash for purity purposes. Everything out in there was mostly made of brass. In the most holy place, everything is made of gold. And that's where you have the lampstand. That's where you have the table of showbread that would have the bread and the wine that was on there. That's where you have the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, which is the throne of God. And inside that, you're going to have the three elements that were put in there. Some of the manna that was left over from in the wilderness or that they kept as a memorial the tablets for the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's rod that budded. And all those things in different ways point to Christ. But here's all this stuff made out of gold, intricately designed and everything, outside is brass, and, and then it's covered. And it's covered by, the first layer is covered by linens. They color them purple, red and blue, purple, usually used for royalty. Kings and princes wore that kind of stuff. And then it's covered with skins. And there's like four different layers. It's amazing when you stop and think about it because the outside of the tabernacle is just a bunch of hides 
there's really nothing overly beautiful about it. From inside the temple, you'd go in and the first section is ornaments of bronze, but still death with the sacrifices and the altar. Then you go from that under the veil, and when you get in under the veil, then everything's gold. It's brilliant. But here's the deal. Who sees it? Out of the twelve tribes of the nation of Israel, one tribe is the priests, the Levites. That's who would get to see the bronze area. The gold area, with all that splendors, with all the gold and the purple, one guy, the high priest, once a year would go in there twice, first offer sacrifice for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. So you got a mirror of the splendors of heaven, and nobody gets to see it, hardly at all. See, that's the point is that we're still on the outside looking in. We're still exiled out of the garden. There's the house of God there, but nobody's allowed in it. But the whole point is you got this one spot on the whole earth where you get a little glimpse of the splendors of heaven and nobody gets to see it. Nobody gets to approach it. Just the high priest once a year. And that's where the pattern really starts to take shape. Because that's exactly what it's showing. Is it showing just this high priest once a year would come in and offer sacrifice for the sins of the people? That is the pattern going forward, and we're going to land on Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that whole pattern. Jesus is where heaven and earth finally get a touch. When Jesus died on the cross, that veil that was the wall, there wasn't even a door in it. They had to climb under the veil to get into the Holy of Holies. When Jesus died on the cross, it says that that veil was ripped right down the middle. In other words, the door into the Holy of Holies, the door into the access to God was swung wide open. And finally, we can have access to God. Finally, we can be accepted by God. Why? Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 8, He's been talking about this. and He's talking about that old sacrificial system and how the priests offering the sacrifice so that you could have forgiveness before God and acceptance before God was now finally fulfilled in Christ with His once and for all sacrifice of His own life for us. But notice what he says in verse 5. They serve as a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. His point is, all those sacrifices that were offered through the years over and over and over, they were a pattern. They were just a copy, a shadow of the real one that takes place in heaven. The real sanctuary that was made by God and not by man. And Jesus Christ being the sacrifice Through His death and His resurrection, He accomplished what those old sacrifices year after year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, they were just drawing us a picture pointing us to Christ. So Moses, as he made the tabernacle, was following a pattern so that it would mirror the sanctuary of God in heaven. It was a a slice of heaven on earth. But that in itself, that tabernacle would then be a pattern, a copy, a shadow that would point us to Christ who would offer the ultimate sacrifice that would bring us to God and that would allow us access to heaven. Not only do we see it as a pattern, but we also see it as as listed within this passage. Its purpose is presence. God's presence. He wanted to be among His people. He wanted to be with His people. And so He was making a way, the way, that that can happen. And that's what continues to happen. In fact, let's just follow it a little bit. At the time of Moses, 
God's presence would come and it would inhabit this tabernacle. The Shekinah glory of God would fill the temple. In fact, it tells us in in, uh, chapter 40 that once the tabernacle was completed, that the glory of God descended upon the tabernacle and God would dwell among His people in the midst of that tabernacle. But, fast forward up to the time of Christ, they would have been reminded of this tabernacle in John chapter 1, verse 14, talking about Christ. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word that He uses there for dwell, He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word means to live in a tent. To stay in a tent. To dwell in a tent. The Word became flesh and it dwelt among us. In fact, some commentators have gone so far to just call it the Word became flesh and it tabernacled among us. It's kind of interesting that this Word that's used for dwelled is only used by the Apostle John in all all of the New Testament. But he also uses the same Word in the book of Revelation. And in chapter 21 and verse 3, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And so he looks forward to the time when they finally have the new heavens and the new earth. And he says, He's going to dwell with us again. In the new heaven and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, He's going to live among us. You know, Matthew said the same thing with different words in in chapter 1, verse 23. He says, Behold, and he's quoting from Isaiah here in chapter 7, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, He was the presence of God among us as God dwelt among us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, that whole tabernacle... And that temple beforehand pointed to Christ. Because Christ is the way that God would dwell among us. In fact, in in John chapter 2, Jesus gets in a discussion with the religious leaders. It says, Jesus answered them. uh, and, And the reason He's answering them is because He's just gone into the temple and He found them selling animals in it. Uh, to make a profit to people for sacrifice. And, and he found a lot of things going on in there that he did not like. He just put an end to it. He went through there. He flipped over money tables. He made a whip out of some reeds that were there. And he drove out people and animals out of the temple. And he said, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves. The people came up to him afterwards and they said, Who do you think you are? By what authority do you come in here and, and make this havoc? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But He was speaking about the temple of His body. And so Jesus identifies His own body with that tabernacle that was constructed by Moses, that temple that was constructed by Solomon in his days. But the same of them, both of them carrying on the same function. What is the function? This is where God dwells with us. God is dwelling with us in the person of His Son. This is where the sacrifices take place that make us acceptable unto God. This is how we can have God among us was through Christ. And then in the future, as we bounce back to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22, we finally get to a time where there is no temple. We're back to where we started. In the Garden of Eden, there is no temple. Then during the time of Moses, God makes a tabernacle for Him to live in. 
heightens that during the time of David or just after with his son Solomon. Jesus is that tabernacle when He lived here. And in the future, there will be no tabernacle. There will be no temple. Why? He says, I saw no temple in the city. Talking about the New Jerusalem. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You see, that's what the temple signifies is the presence of God. And the presence of God is just going to be with us in the New Jerusalem. But then that brings us a question. We're not there yet. We don't have the temple or the tabernacle that the children of Israel worshipped at. Jesus, He's in the heavenly sanctuary. What about now? Where's the temple now? Where's the presence of God now? How is God dwelling among us now? And you know what the answer is? It's you. It's you. In two different ways. It's you individually as a believer in Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit comes and inhabits you. The Bible says when we put our faith in Christ that the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. And that makes you a temple. But there's another way that the Holy Spirit indwells us, and that is corporately as the church. The church is the temple of God. So we're the temple of God individually, and we're also the temple of God collectively. Now those apply to our lives in a couple of different ways as we look in these passages. Notice first of all in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought for a price, so glorify God with your body. He just got done telling them how you need to abstain from, from sexual immorality, which is any sexuality outside of marriage, and other things in their lives. And he says, look, why should you abstain from sinful things? Because you're a temple. And that shines a whole new light on it, doesn't it? As a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the temple of God. You are the place where God dwells. His Holy Spirit lives within you. So anything that you do that is sinful, you are like defiling the temple of God. But not only is it in you individually, it's, it's in us collectively. How does that apply to my life? If I'm God's temple individually, that means obviously the, the application to my life is purity. Right? If I'm God's temple, then I need to be careful what I participate in as God's temple. Because God's temple needs to not be defiled. God's temple needs to be pure. But what about God's temple collectively or corporately as a church? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He's writing to Gentile people. And he's saying, you were alienated from God. You were outside the family. You were outside the people of God. But you know what? In Christ, when you, the moment you believed in Christ, you were brought in. And notice the language in here. He's building us together into this temple. In other words, our experience with one another. Your relationship with God is not just an individual thing. Our relationship with God is a collective thing. We're called to come together and to gather together and to worship God and to gather together and build one another up. And I'm part of you and you're part of me as we're all part of the church. And collectively, we are the body of Christ. We are the dwelling place of God on this earth at this moment. 
But 1 Corinthians in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, the context of what's happening here, right before that, he just got done talking about the lack of unity within the Corinthian church. If you read the whole letter of Corinthians, they had a lot of division in the church. Right in the midst of all that, the Apostle Paul gives them this passage. He says, you, Corinthian church, are the temple. You're the dwelling place of God. If you destroy this temple, through what? Through their disunity, through their infighting, and through their bickering back and forth. If you destroy this temple, God is not going to take that lightly. If God's dwelling place is within me as an individual, then the application is obviously purity. What is the application of this principle of us collectively being the dwelling place of God? Well, it's still purity, but it's also unity. God does not take it lightly when churches are destroyed because of infighting within the church and divisions within the church and bickering within the church. God says you better be careful what you're tearing down. That's my temple. As we experience the salvation in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of that temple, We become that temple as we live for Him in purity and unity.